I'm Pippa. If you would turn your Bibles um, to the first book of the Bible, the creation narrative, um, we're going to be reading from chapter one, just a couple of verses. So church Bibles, I guess it's page three. Or I guess some of you might have it on devices. So Genesis chapter one, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Um, we've got a guest speaker with us tonight. Um, his name's Andrew Bunt. He's sat down here. I'd like to invite you up, Andrew, um, and just ask you um, a really broad question, really, just to introduce you to our church family. Um, just ask you, what is your background um, and what do you do now? Basically, who are you? Who, 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 who are, are you? Who is this person? <laughs> How long have we got? No, no, don't worry. Uh, so I am from Bexhill, which is a small seaside town on the southeast coast, kind of along from Brighton. I am primarily a speaker and writer. That's the main kind of stuff I do. And I work, uh, my main job is for an organization called Living Out. And so we're a group of people who love Jesus. We're followers of Jesus. We also happen to be same-sex attracted or gay or whatever language you want to use. And we help people and churches and wider society think about how their faith and sexuality and gender and all these kind of things go together. So I get to spend my life thinking about those, teaching about those, writing about those kind of things all over the place. Thank you. If I could just pray with you before um, you start, that'd be great. Um, very quickly, um, hopefully for those of you who've been coming along to this series, you'll know the drill by now. Um, there will be a QR code coming up on the slides, hopefully. Um, and it's a chance for you to ask your questions um, during um, Andrew's talk. And then at the end, we'll do a Q&A and we'll go through and some of those questions. So yeah, please do um, open your phone camera and scan that and ask questions throughout. Um, I'm just going to pray with you and then carry on. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Andrew. Thank you so much that he's here with us tonight talking about gender. I pray that you give him peace and wisdom as he speaks about this topic. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, it is really lovely to be here with you. And uh, great to be part of this series. I'm so excited that you're taking a number of weeks to wrestle with what we know are really big topics, but also really real-life topics that I really believe God has good news to bring to each one of us on. And I'm glad that today we get to wrestle with a big question, the question, why does God care about my gender? And I wonder if that's a question lots of people ask, and there's kind of different reasons you might ask it on there. Some people might ask it out of kind of genuine curiosity. I wonder why God would care about my gender. But I think sometimes, actually, people might ask it, we might ask it with a slight more sense of pointedness and maybe even a sense of a kind of objection of, well, why would God care about my gender? 
You might be kind of asking, well, what right has God got to interfering in something like that aspect of my life? Or actually, why do I want to believe in a God who's restrictive or controlling of certain areas of my life? There's different reasons or different ways you might ask that question. But I think it's also interesting to ask, why do we care about gender? We've got to be honest, we live in a culture that really cares about gender. It's kind of prominent in the news all the time. Think of recent debates over something like um, the Gender Recognition Reform Act in Scotland. Should you be able to just choose what gender you are and everyone has to go along with whatever you say and however you feel yourself to be? Think then a few weeks later of how Scotland had lots of controversy over what prisons, trans-identified prisoners, should be sent to. Think about the huge surge in the numbers of young people identifying as trans and questioning their gender we're seeing over the last 10 years. Or all the controversy over statements that people like J.K. Rowling have made and how suddenly she, in many areas of our society, is kind of a person pushed out because of her views on gender. We seem to really, really care about gender. It's interesting to ask, why do we as a society care about gender? And I wonder if there are three reasons, maybe. Three things came to mind for me of reasons why I think we as a society really care about gender. One is because we really care about equality. We care about people being treated fairly. And feminism has rightly been pushing, actually, for actually recognizing that men and women are equal and should be treated equally. We care about gender because we care about equality of people of different genders. I think also you look around our world and we care about freedom. We are in a culture that cares about us having freedom to be ourselves, as it were, including when it comes to the topic of gender. And I think we're in a culture that really cares about well-being, about people being able to find and live out and enjoy their best life, including in relation to gender. It seems to me that we, as a culture, really care about gender. So in one sense, we can just say, well, why shouldn't God, therefore, also care about gender? But it's also just interesting to ask, well, does God really care about gender? And I think he does, but I'm not convinced he does in the way that people often assume he does. Read the Bible, the Bible isn't obsessed with gender, isn't it? You don't get stuff about gender on every page of the Bible. And I think often people have this kind of caricature of the God of the Bible. That he doesn't really care about people, but he cares about picky little details like gender and wants to be controlling and restrictive but that is such a caricature, such a, a false impression of what the God of the Bible is really about, what he's really like. God does care, but he doesn't care about gender because he's controlling or he's old-fashioned or he's picking about little details. He cares about gender because he cares about people. He cares about you and me and our friends and family, the people in our towns and cities. I'm convinced the key reason that God cares about gender is because he cares about us. And actually, I think God cares about those three things that we as a culture care about, about equality and about freedom and about well-being. I think those are also important to God. And actually, though, before we go any further, it's worth just checking we know what we're talking about. Gender is one of those words used all the time, rarely defined, using lots of different ways, quite a complex word and concept in some ways. But all of those, ultimately, all the different uses of the word, um, concepts behind the word, come back to the key question or the key thing of what does it actually mean to be a man or woman? That, I think, is the question line behind all. What does it mean to be a man or a woman? And for lots of different ones of us, in different ways, that will be a very real-life question. The question, what does it mean to be a man or woman, has been a very kind of real-life question for me at different points in my life. There was a time in my childhood when I really strongly came to believe that I was a girl trapped in a boy's body. I remember it so vividly. I remember the fear that I would get pregnant, clearly not knowing how these things work, and my big secret would be found out. And I kind of concluded as a kid, well, I'll just have to never get married, never leave homes, so that no one finds out this big secret. 
there was a big kind of disconnect between what I was feeling inside and what my body seemed to say, what everyone else seemed to say. What does it mean to a man or a woman? Even at a young age was a big question for me. And actually, for me, that experience went away as I went through my teenage years. And that's not an uncommon experience, actually. But I was still left with this niggling sense of, or this kind of lingering sense of discomfort about my identity as a man. A feeling of not really fitting in with other men, not really being a real man or kind of making the cut. It wasn't a disconnect between the internal and the external, but it was certainly a significant discomfort with who I am as a man. For me, this has been a real-life question. For many of us here, in different ways, this will be or will have been a real-life question. And probably all of us will know people who we know and love for whom this is a real-life question. It's an important topic, therefore. And it's a tricky topic. I want to try and handle it sensitively, because for different ones of us, it's going to really hit home into real-life stuff. And what I want to help us do this evening is to do two things. One is to wrestle with that question, what does it mean to be a man or woman? That I think is the fundamental question. And then we'll ask, well, why does God actually care? And if we, as followers of Jesus, want to ask the question, what does it mean to be a man or a woman? I think those verses we just heard from Genesis 1 are the key starting point for us. Genesis 1, the very first chapter of the Bible, is this beautiful big picture account of God's creation of all things. And you get to day 6 is the day when humans are made as the kind of pinnacle of God's creation And we hear those words. I'm going to read them again and just encourage us to listen out to what is God telling us about ourselves? What is God telling us about humans in these brief words? Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I think there are three really important things we learn about humans in these brief verses. The first thing is about the image of God. That every single human being is created in the image of God. And presumably that's pretty much the most important thing about us. It's basically the first thing we're told about humans in the Bible. Before anything is said about being a man or woman, we're told that every single one of us is made in the image of God. And if you look through other references to that in Scripture, I think what that means is there's like a family resemblance between us and God. A few chapters later, Genesis 5, Adam has a son called Seth. And Seth is said to be born in the likeness and the image of Adam. It's the idea we kind of know of like father, like son, a family resemblance idea. Well, I think the same is true of us and God. We're in the image of God. There's a family resemblance in some unspecified way between us and between God. And this is true because of how God has made us and what God says over us. This is an identity given to us, a truth that is true of us by virtue of what God says about us. You don't have to act in a certain way to become in the image of God. You are in the image of God because that's how God has created us and what he says over us. And bearing the image of God is hugely important. Again, look at how it's used in Scripture. And having been created in the image of God means that we as humans, every single one of us, has inherent worth and has inherent dignity. Our life has value and is worthy of preservation and protection. That's why in Genesis 9, murder is treated so incredibly seriously because it's the murder of someone who's created in the image of God. In the New Testament, 
In James's letter, in James 3, it's the reason we shouldn't even speak against people. He says we shouldn't curse other people. We shouldn't kind of speak evil over other people because they've been created in the likeness, in the image of God. This image of God gives us inherent worth, inherent dignity. It's the basis, actually, for equality. And before anything is said about men and women and any differences between us, we're told that every single one of us is created in the image of God. There's a foundation for equality, including equality between men and women. Genesis 1 wants us to get this idea. We have this inherent worth, this inherent dignity, this thing that means we are all equal together. We bear the image of God. And the second thing in these verses you might have spotted we're told about humans is we're created in the image of God and we're created male and female. That there are two types of human, each one wearing the image of God. And the fact that that is mentioned and kind of highlighted in this account of Genesis 1 tells us that's a good thing. If you know the creation story in Genesis 1, you know it keeps going day after day about the goodness of what God creates. God looks at what he's created and it is good until on the final day it's very good. It's all about the goodness of the world that God has created. There's something good about the fact of being created male and female. It's a good, purposeful part of God's design of the world. And notice also in that middle verse, verse 27, this being created male or female is placed kind of in parallel with the image of God. In the image of God, we're created. Male and female, we're created. There's, there's a parallel nature to this, which I think is about the fact both of them are given identities, that God gives these identities to us in how he makes us and what he speaks over us. God is the one who determines who we are. Biblically speaking, that's how identity works, that God gives us our identity. We receive it from him. The question becomes, well, how do we receive the identity of being male or female and that's where the third thing we get to see in this passage comes in. That male and female in Genesis 1's conception are bodily categories and bodily identities. What does it mean to be male or female? It means to have a certain kind of body. Did you notice something really interesting happens in these verses? Because in verse 26, there's that, there's that command for humans to have dominion over all the things that God has created. And in verse 28, there's the same command to have dominion and rule and subdue over all the things, but something else is added first. There's the command to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. That's there in verse 28, just before the rule and subdue thing. It's not there in verse 26 with the ruling and subduing. So what's changed? What's happened in the middle? The creation of male and female, or the introduction of the idea of male and female. The text flows immediately from male and female he made them to be fruitful and multiply. Why? Because to be male or female means to have a body that is structured to play a certain role in reproduction. You need male and female in order to be fruitful and to multiply. Genesis 1 is showing us what does it mean to be male or female? It means to be given by God a body that plays one of two roles in reproduction. Genesis 1 is showing us this identity is given to us in our bodies, which are a good gift from God. I think you've already spoken about the body in this series. And that actually, as it happens, fits with science. The only truly binary way, the only kind of either-or way of classifying two distinct types of humans is in the structuring of our bodies to reproduction. It fits with how scientists classify uh, male and female, the sexes across all species. The only recognized way of classifying male and female across the species is in bodies and the kind of structuring for reproduction. Unsurprisingly, what the Bible says lines up with what we've discovered through science. And it's also important to say at this point that the reality of what are known as intersex conditions or differences of sexual development doesn't undermine this idea. 
So intersex conditions or DSDs are very rare conditions where someone's physical body doesn't match the expected pattern for either male or female. In the vast majority of cases, the variation is quite small, actually. And someone is clearly male or female, and they identify as male or female, but there's a small level of variation in their physical embodiment to the expected pattern. There are some very, very rare occurrences, but they do happen, where there's genuine ambiguity over whether somebody's body is male or female. But it's better to understand that as being a blending of the two together than of something different. Because there's no third sex. There's not a man and a woman or something else, because there's no third world in reproduction. There's no third part that you can play in producing a baby. It's male and female come together to make a baby. And so when there's ambiguity in someone's body over whether they're male or female, actually we're best off understanding that as a blending of the two. It doesn't really make sense to say there's a third type of person in that way. And what that means is the reality of these very rare experiences doesn't undermine the idea that there's male and female in God's good creation, and that God gives to us that identity in our bodies. And so as Christians, we come to the Bible and say, what does it mean to be a man or a woman? The indication that Genesis 1 gives us, which I think is then seen throughout the Bible, is that God is giving us identity in a body and in the structuring of our body towards playing one of two roles in reproduction. And even as I say that, you will quickly and easily be able to hear how different that is to how many people in our culture, the world around us, are thinking about this kind of question. One very common view in our culture sees the body actually as totally irrelevant, really, to who we are. The body is very insignificant. The body, in lots of ways in our culture, actually is seeing as insignificant. And its internal feelings that we're told really matter. How you feel inside, who you feel yourself to be inside, that's what really matters. For many people in the world around us, that's how we're thinking, what we're believing. We kind of have this concept of a, a gender identity, that each of us has this, this thing inside, which actually is what makes us a man or a woman. It's about what we find inside, what we feel inside. And so one view in our culture is that if you feel like a woman, you are a woman. Or actually a man is someone who feels like a man. That's a really common view in our culture. I also think there are just some problems with it. Even before we get to asking, well, what did the Bible say about that? There are some fairly simple problems with it. To say a woman is someone who feels like a woman, what's it mean to feel like a woman? Who could know? Who could articulate what it means to feel like a woman? It doesn't really help us define anything. And actually, a definition like a man is someone who feels like a man, well, you can't define a word by using the word. If you say a man is someone who feels like a man, you're saying a man is someone who feels like someone, is someone who feels like someone, is someone who feels like someone, you get stuck in an infinite loop. And there's literally no meaning in it. There's no content to that statement. This really common view in our culture doesn't actually help us answer the question, what's it mean to be a man or a woman? It just doesn't work. Even before, as I say, we get to actually its clash with what the Bible says. And the problem you then get is, if you can't define what a man is or what a woman is, you can't protect people's rights, particularly women's rights, and things start to get rather difficult, as we're seeing in our culture at the moment. So I think, actually, the Bible has a good message here, uh, an answer that works, in a sense, to the question, what's it mean to be a man or a woman? But I'm also aware, if we're honest, I think the question we really care about isn't so much what's it mean to be a man or a woman, but what's it mean to live as a man and a woman? When kind of the rubber hits the road in day-to-day -day life, how are we meant to live? I think for many of us, that's what we really care about. Does the Bible say that men and women are to live in different ways? That's to kind of shape our way of living in the world in some ways. Well, I think it does. 
I think the Bible says that we're to live out our identity as a man or a woman. But actually, I think how it says that is surprising to many of us. And I think actually people expect there to be lots of restrictive parameters, lots of controlling rules in the Bible about how men should be and how women should be. And I really don't think there are. I think the scriptures have two small parameters for how we live out our identity as a man or a woman, and that's basically it. Let me just try and summarize them for you. I think the Christian scriptures do say that we're to present the identity God is giving us as either a man or a woman in kind of our external appearance. That we're to maintain the distinction of this good thing that God has created two types of humans. He's created men and created women. I think that's why scripture has a prohibition of cross-dressing. Someone like Deuteronomy 22.5, one of the laws in the Old Testament. Or there's a passage in one of Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians 11 about head coverings. It's really complex, really confusing. But the one thing pretty much everyone agrees on is a key point for Paul is you're meant to keep and maintain the distinction between men and women. And that distinction should be kind of visible, actually, in how we present ourselves to the world. Our external appearance is meant to uh, portray the identity God has given us as a man or a woman. And let's be honest, the bodies God is giving us give us a head start on that, right? You know, breasts and beards and stuff like that help us actually to see that we are men or women. Which, side note, I always have to clarify now, doesn't mean I think men have to grow a beard. I was once asked that after a talk. I don't think it's a requirement for us as men to, wear, to have beards. But the point is, our bodies are different in visible ways. And then we continue what the body starts in kind of how we dress and how we style our hair and stuff. So I think there are different roles, a, different, um, a call for us to live out our identity, our external appearance. And then a point where Christians have different views, but a plausible reading of Scripture is that there are different roles for men and women in marriage relationships and in church leadership structures. As I say, Christians have different views, but it's a plausible reading. But I can't see anything else in Scripture about how we as men and women need to live differently. There are no other set requirements of men must do this, women must do that. I just don't see any evidence of that in the Scripture. The Bible certainly doesn't say that we have to live out some kind of restrictive, um, constraining gender stereotypes. That there's a narrow box for men to fit in and a, a narrow box for women to fit in. That's just not there in the Bible. And actually, the Bible's view on gender gives us the basis for freedom from constrictive gender stereotypes. You see, if we're a man or we're a woman as an identity given to us by God in our body, then we don't have to act in a certain way to become a man or act in a certain way to be a real woman. We just get to receive the identity God has given us and then we get to be really relaxed about our uniqueness and about our personality and preferences and all the differences you see among a group of men and all the differences you see among a group of women. You see, knowing who you are allows you to be how you are. Knowing who you are, a received identity from God, gives you the freedom to be relaxed about how you are. And this is, for me, where I've just realized biblical teaching is so freeing and so life-giving, where it's helped me so much. I shared with you that even after that period of disconnect kind of naturally went away as I grew up, I was still left with a sense of discomfort. But even I didn't really fit in as a man, I didn't make the cut as a real man, I wasn't like other men. But then I realized, no, no, the Bible says I'm a man because God says I'm a man. That's been given to me in my body. I don't have to act in a certain way to be a man. It doesn't matter that I might feel like I'm different to some other men. And that gives me the freedom to be how I am. Knowing who I am, as God says I'm a man, has given that identity to me in my body, allows me to be how I am. I can embrace my deep love for Downton Abbey and for musicals and my somewhat flamboyant nature sometimes. And it doesn't matter that I don't like rugby or beer or steak. Those things don't make me a man. I'm a man because God says I'm a man. And that gives me the freedom to be how I am. 
It's good news. It's wonderfully freeing. And what's so funny is the cultural narrative around us is claiming to be really freeing. It's claiming to be throwing off the kind of oppressive restrictions of old views of what men and women are like. But actually, in many ways, it's the culture's view which is reasserting rather old-fashioned views of what men and women should be like. I've said already, what's it mean to feel like a man or feel like a woman? Generally speaking, when you drill down to it, it means to align some stereotypes, to feel like you fit better in this little box than in that little box. I remember seeing a, a documentary about trans-identifying kids, and there was this dad who said, I knew my son was a girl when I saw him run. You think, what? It's diagnosis by stereotypes. Actually, the whole kind of narrative of our culture is saying, if you, there's this narrow box for men and this narrow box for women, and actually, if you're a male-bodied person, you don't feel like you fit in the narrow box for men, that might be because you're a woman or because you're neither. It's just reinforcing very unhelpful gender stereotypes. We're told that culture is freeing and the Bible is restrictive. The reality is the opposite. Culture is asking us to conform to kind of narrow expectations of what it means to be or to live as a man or woman. The Bible is saying you're a man or woman because God's given that to you. Now be relaxed about how you are and enjoy that. We've got really, really good news to bring. We can be confident on a topic like this. And that actually, I think, brings us to the second question of, well, why does God care about this? Why would God care about a topic like gender? Well, I think what we just said points us to it. It's because God cares about us. God's got good news for us and wants us to live and experience that good news. I think God cares about gender because he cares about us. And also, rightly, he cares about his glory, and we'll come to that in a moment. He cares about us, and I think those three things I mentioned at the start, three reasons why many people in our culture really care about gender, I think God cares about those too, and that's why he wants us to understand what he says about it. Now, God cares about equality. He cares about equality. He's created each one of us in his image. That is the foundation, the the basis for true equality. That every single living human being, whether they're a man or a woman, whether they're very able or very unable, whatever it might be, has inherent worth and dignity purely because they are made in the image of God. Christianity, actually, this, this kind of belief is the foundation for equality. The Christian faith, Christian movement was birthed into a context where women were seen as second-class citizens, were seen so often as, as property. They were lesser than men. They were seen as kind of half-formed men. Literally, that kind of phrase was used in some ancient literature. And women, pretty much without fail, were incredibly vulnerable in the ancient world into which Christianity was birthed, vulnerable, basically, at the hands of powerful men. And basically, no one was really questioning that that's just how things are. There was no equality of the sexes in that sense. And then Christianity breaks into that cultural context, rooted in the Jewish tradition, in the truth of Genesis 1.27, rooted in the example of Jesus, and radically changes the situation of women. Acknowledges them as being of equal status as men, acknowledging them as having the right to bodily and sexual autonomy. People talk about the first sexual revolution. The real sexual revolution wasn't in the last century, in the 1960s. It was in the first century of Christianity coming in. And so actually, men, you don't have the right to have sex with basically anyone you want. Actually, people have the right to bodily and sexual autonomy. Men, you don't have the right to exert power over women and take what you want. Actually, women have equal rights and equal dignity uh, as with men. Basically, consent is built on this whole kind of idea. And interestingly, today... Lots of even secular thinkers are realizing the sexual revolution of the 1960s really hasn't been good for women. 
There's a book being talked about a lot at the moment called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, written by a feminist, um, secular, non-Christian journalist. And basically she's saying the sexual revolution we've experienced in the last half century has been really bad for women, and pretty much the answer for protecting women is marriage. You think, who knew? Who knew marriage was a good idea? God cares about gender because he cares about us. He cares about equality, and we are the ones who have the foundation, the reason why we as a culture even believe in equality. It's good news. And God cares, cares also about freedom, one of those other things we said we really care about. God cares about us having the freedom to embrace our uniqueness. God loves diversity. He loves all the diversity he's created within our personality and our preferences and all the ways that we are all different. And as I said, our culture claims to be offering us great freedom when it comes to the topic of gender and yet in reality, much of the cultural narrative is just reaffirming and reappropriating old gender stereotypes that ask us to squeeze into a box here or squeeze into a box there. We're told if we don't fit into the box of what it means to be a man, well, we're probably not a man, we're probably a woman, or we're non-binary, or whatever it might be, it's actually really restrictive to us. And also the cultural narrative isn't actually very freeing because it puts a lot of pressure on us. And I think we're seeing this among young people today, particularly. Young people are being told, your body doesn't dictate who you are. Other people's opinion doesn't dictate who you are. How you feel inside dictates who you are. And so young people, like all of us, look inside and think, oh man, there's a mess of stuff inside. Who am I? And young people are being told, you need to work out who you are inside. And you need to embrace that and express that to find your best life. No one else can help you because it's inside you. None of us know what's inside you. That's a lot of pressure. Young people being told, you've got to get this right. You can only do it on your own, and if you don't, you're going to miss out on your best life. It's no surprise we're seeing a mental health crisis among young people. I'm convinced that's one of the reasons why. Culture's approach on this isn't good news. It uh, puts incredible pressure on us. The Bible's message releases us from pressure. The Bible offers us true freedom. You can actually know who you are. You can know who you are, and you can embrace that and receive that as a gift and be relaxed about how you are. It brings clarity that we're looking for, and it takes off the pressure that so many of us feel we're experiencing. Knowing who we are, we get to be how we are. God cares about gender, because he cares about us, because he cares about freedom. And finally, God also cares about well-being. God cares about people finding and enjoying their best life. He actually cares about that much more than even we do as a culture. And our culture tells us the way you find your best life is by embracing everything you find inside and bravely living that out regardless of what people say. And yet so many people in our culture have found that doesn't actually bring the satisfaction we think it will. It doesn't actually do the job. The Bible says, no, your best life isn't found by embracing whatever you find inside. Your best life is found by receiving your identity from God and then living that out, living out what he says of actually how we're to live. And I think there's very good reasons to question, actually, looking at the world around us, whether the culture's approach really is bringing well-being. The evidence on the impact of gender transitions, the idea of living in line of how you feel inside rather than what your body says, the evidence is inconclusive at best, and there's certainly no firm evidence to show that it improves long-term happiness and long-term uh, mental health and kind of satisfaction and those kind of things. And then going broader to the societal level, as we've kind of severed, as we separated this idea of gender identity and what we feel inside from the body, it's causing all manner of problems in our culture, especially for the protection of women's rights. We're 
tearing ourselves apart over how we can actually hold this idea on gender and still protect women's rights, things like single-sex spaces, things like um, prisons, as we've heard in the news recently. It's also actually meaning we're not being very good at protecting the opportunities of women. You might have heard the story recently in the news that the Brit Awards made their um, Artist of the Year category gender neutral, rather than having separate men and women categories. And when the nominees came out, there were no women, no female-bodied people in the nominees. Unsurprisingly, take away gendered categories and the men are the ones who get the advantage. This isn't good for society, it's not good for women. And it creates problems with safeguarding women. As I said, the kind of transgender prisoner um, stories from Scotland would be a, a clear example of that. When we separate identity from the body, we get real difficulties as society, and that's why this has become such a controversial kind of topic. But God cares about our well-being. His plans are good for us as we live them out. But also, we have to acknowledge that even though living out the Creator's intention for us is the best thing for us, is good for us, will be life-giving for us, we also all live in a world that is impacted by and marred by sin, or, or corporate rebellion against God. And because of that, all of us will find that sometimes living out God's way, even though it's the right thing and the best thing for us, still has real pain in it. And that's certainly true in this kind of uh, topic and this kind of area. It's really key to note, and I don't want to sound like I'm not aware of the fact that for some people, actually, living out what the Bible says on a topic like this will be very difficult, very costly, very painful. For people who identify as trans or people who experience a significant level of gender dysphoria, that, that disconnect between what they feel inside and what their body says and the distress that that causes, for some people, if they choose to be a follower of Jesus and seek to be faithful to biblical teaching, by living in line with what their body says, not with how they feel inside, that will be very painful. That will be very costly. I know people who are walking that path who talk of just the daily pain and battle of choosing to live in line with what their body says, who God says they are, even though how they feel inside is so incredibly different. I don't want to overlook the reality that that's incredibly painful, incredibly costly, incredibly difficult for people. And we as God's people should be the very first to acknowledge that and seek to love people in that and bring compassion to that. We get to introduce people to the God who is a God of compassion, the Father of all mercies, the one who comforts us that we might comfort other people. Well, that is 2 Corinthians 1, Paul teaching us there. And actually, the Bible is not full of stuff about why suffering's there, but wonderfully is full of stuff about actually how, how we can navigate suffering and help other people to do so. And I'm convinced that we as the people of God have an opportunity, actually, to come alongside and love well and walk alongside people for whom actually faithfulness to Jesus will be costly and painful. And for all of us in different ways, faithfulness to Jesus is costly. But actually, we get to bring love and compassion and journey alongside even when things are so difficult for people. God cares about gender because he cares about us. And like us, he cares about well-being. And that is true even for our trans-identified friends. And God, I believe, even has good news for them. God cares about equality, about freedom and well-being. He cares about gender because he cares about us. And the final thing is also, though, God cares about gender because he cares about his glory. 
God's glory is like the kind of manifestation of who he really is. And we see who God really is. And that leads us as humans to worship him and to praise him. And it's right and fitting for God to want to show his glory and receive that worship. When God wants to receive worship to himself, that's not him being kind of self-centered or some kind of megalomaniac. That's the right and fitting thing because he is the creator of all, the ruler and sustainer of all. He is rightly deserving of praise and worship. And as it happens, it does us good when we give him praise and worship as well. And the world that God has created reflects his glory. It reflects something of what he's like and how wonderful he is. Think of these words from um, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. David says, look at the sky and you see something of God. And we see its, you know, its vastness, its beauty, all these kind of things. And that principle that the created world that God has made reveals God is true of all sorts of areas of creation, not just the example David gives there. In lots of ways, both ways we kind of know and understand and ways we don't know and understand, the created world is pointing us to God and what he is really like. God's creation reveals his glory, and I think that's also true in God's creation of us as men and women. And that's purposeful. It's a part of God's good creation. Remember, Genesis 1 told us. And so somehow as we live out these identities God has given us, we're reflecting something of God and bringing glory to him. And it may be, Maybe that actually there's a real link between the image of God and being male and female. Maybe we need both men and women to reflect the image of God. I say maybe because Genesis 1.27 could be indicating that. I don't think it's explicitly made as a connection. But it may be actually this image of God that's true of us is best reflected in the fact that there are both men and women. And that's, again, a purposeful part of God's design. That's why he cares. But even if that's not an explicit link made in Scripture, the general principle is true that the created world that God has made points to him, reveals him. It's about him and about his glory. So I do think that God cares about the topic of gender, but I think actually it's not for the reasons that people might so often assume he does. God isn't a killjoy who kind of cares about little details but not about people. He's not restrictive and controlling and just kind of like a puppet master having a bit of fun with us. Actually, he's a loving God who cares about things like gender because he cares about us. And he cares about his glory. Just like us, he cares about equality, about freedom, about well-being. And God invites us and calls us to embrace the identity he has given us as the foundation for that equality, as the foundation for true freedom, and actually also the foundation for the well-being that he wants us to experience in relationship with him and in his ways. That means God has good news for us. And God has good news for us as his people to share with the world around us who, is, who are just longing for answers and good news when it comes to a topic like gender. And so the kind of question I want to leave you with, I guess, is what does this good news mean for you here and now tonight? Maybe for you, actually, you have had kind of a caricature of God. You have thought of God as restrictive and controlling a bit of a killjoy. And actually, for you tonight, the response might be to repent. That means to turn away from wrong ideas about God to confess, God, I, I've viewed you wrongly. That's not what you're actually like. And to see afresh what God is really like and to reorientate your heart in that way. For some of us, it may be actually needing to embrace the givenness of our identity as men and women and accepting and enjoying the uniqueness of our own expression of being a man or being a woman and not being controlled or um, hampered by those stereotypes that are so common in our culture but are just not what the Bible calls us to. 
For some of us, the invitation here is to step into real freedom tonight, actually, through the truth of God's word. And for some of us, it may be that really difficult, painful thing of saying, I'm going to trust, uh, entrust my well-being to God. I'm going to choose to live his way. I'm going to choose to live out the identity he's given me, even if actually that's incredibly painful for me, because inside I might feel so different. For some of us here tonight, and I even what I've said might have been really painful to hear, it might be that God is calling us to entrust our well-being to him, but also even in the pain that, that may cause us to know and experience the fact that he is the God of all comfort, who draws near to the brokenhearted, who restores the crushed in spirit, who's with us even when things are so difficult. I'd love to pray for us, that whatever it is looks like for us as individuals to respond to this tonight, that God by his spirit would help us to do that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that on a topic that our culture cares so much about, you have wonderful good news for us. And actually, even on a topic like this, we see your heart for us and your heart for our good, your heart for our flourishing. And we say tonight, Lord, we want to receive the truth of your word and we want to live that out in our hearts and lives. Whether that is changing our view of you, whether that is embracing actually the uniqueness of how you've made us, whether that is making a very costly decision to live out the identity you is giving us, even if everything inside of us feels different. Lord, I pray for each one of us, whatever our right response to your word might be tonight, please would you, by your spirit, uh, guide us into that, empower us for that, and enable us to do that. And please, Lord, help us to receive and enjoy the good news you have for us on this topic, and then to be good news bringers to the world around us who so long to, uh, or so need to hear this good news as well. Help us in all these ways we ask. Amen. Amen. I'm going to wipe Ruth up and we've got some time for questions, I think. Yeah, thank you so much, Andrew, for sharing with us tonight. We've had a lot of questions come through. Great. Um, I'm going to attempt to get through all of them. <laughs> um, but as we've sort of seen throughout the last couple of weeks here, sometimes these questions are, are huge topics that we, sure, we yeah. can't cover in sort of 15 or 10, 15 minutes we, we've got, but we'll try, try our best. Um, first question, it's not, is, which I've got here, is um, what does it mean God created mankind in his likeness? What is God like in relation to gender? Um, I don't know what that... The Church of England. <laughs> the Church of England, thank you, <laughs> is deliberating if to use gender-neutral term for God, will the Church of England rewrite the Bible in Love this term? In that term. In this term, in this, yeah, yeah terminology it, maybe. Yeah, what does it mean God created mankind in his likeness? I think it's not specified clearly in Scripture. And theologians over the centuries are giving all kinds of answers. It means actually about our, our, our reason and our ability to think, or it means self-consciousness, or it's about our role as the stewards of God's creation, or all kinds of different things. I just think Scripture is not particularly explicit on it. Although I think that family resemblance thing I talked about with Seth and Adam is really key. So that's why I talk about this unspecified family resemblance. Because you actually get problems if you narrow it down any further. If the image of God, say, is about being creatures who are able to reason and to think, you raise all the questions about what about people whose cognitive ability is limited through various forms of disability, saying are able to, to reason. Uh, which I think Scripture is not pointing at. So what does it actually mean? I think it's very general. Yeah, what is God like in relation to gender? 
a complex question, isn't it? Because if actually, if, if male and female, men and women are these bodily terms, well, God doesn't have a body. So obviously, in that sense, he's not male or female. And yet, Scripture chooses to use primarily male terms for God, although sometimes also uses female imagery for God. And so I just think the easiest thing for us to do, basically, is to say, we don't know, but we'll follow the example of Scripture, which is say, actually, male terms are the primary refer to God, but also female-focused imagery, such as mothering imagery, can be so helpful for understanding what God is like. Whether the CEB are going to be right their Bibles, I wouldn't like to comment. I don't know. Um, they've got bigger fish to fry, I think, at the moment than uh, this particular question, but it's a good question to ask. Great, thank you. For those of us who don't identify as Christian, if I identify as a different gender to the sex assigned at birth, doesn't that mean God has made a mistake in making me differently to who Mm. I really am? Great question, yeah. And maybe a question that all of us in different ways can relate to. There's things in our lives that we think, I'm I'm not sure this is how things are being a perfect world, maybe in our embodied existence, maybe in our experience of mental health, whatever it might be, and we're wrestling with that question actually of has something gone wrong in how God has made me? I think there's two things to say here. One is the fact that every one of us, regardless of anything else, is made in the image of God. So we've got those, that inherent worth and dignity. And that's, that's the thing that our worth and dignity comes from. That nothing can change that. God never gets that wrong. That's an important foundation. And then there's the reality that all of us in both our body and our mind experience things that are not the way they might have been if sin hadn't entered the world. The Bible talks about this thing called the fall, when sin enters the world, and everything gets disrupted by that. And just one of the ways you might experience that is having this strong sense inside that we're a woman, say, when our body is a man. But I, in lots of different ways, experience that same kind of impact of sin in the world. All of us do. So it's not to say this is an unusual experience. All of us experience this reality of the world is not fully as it would have been. It doesn't mean God has made mistakes, but it means actually the world is being impacted by our mistake, our rebellion against God. And the wonderful good, good news of Christianity is that actually God's on a way to making all things new. And actually all of us will experience wonderful perfection if we trust in Jesus. And what will that look like for someone who's transidentified now? I don't know, but I know it'll be good. And I'm happy to trust in him for that. So actually understanding the Bible's big story, I think helps all of us to think about did God make a mistake in this aspect of how he made me? Because actually explains how things are as they are, but also wonderful hope of how things will be. Great, thank you. How do we love a trans non-binary person well? Can we or should we use preferred pronouns and chosen names? I want to love well while also being clear on God's word. Marrying those two feels quite mm. hard. Brilliant, yeah, yeah. And that's... The kind of thing we're wrestling with, isn't it? We want to love well, absolutely. That's our our priority. How do we love well? Two two separate things I'll say. One is, I don't think Jesus expects people who aren't following him to live his way. And I don't think Jesus' call to us as Christians is go and get the world to line up with our ways of thinking and our ways of living. I think our commission for Jesus is go and tell the world the good news of the gospel and that actually God wants to accept us from where we are And that all of us will have loads of things in our life to think through and to work out if we choose to become a follower of Jesus. So I don't think in our relationships with trans and non-binary friends, our main aim is to sort the gender issue, actually is to introduce them to Jesus. But the really practical thing about pronouns and chosen names is really complex, and I don't think there's a black and white thing. I think it's a a conscience issue, what sometimes we call disputable matter, which means we each before God have to wrestle with it. Names people tend to see is less problematic because they're less gendered, so it's not so much an issue, you know, we have nicknames and all kind of things all the time. 
Pronouns, those little words like he and she, him and her, are more complicated because they are gendered. And Christians have various views ranging from we should never use preferred pronouns because to do so is in effect to tell a lie, ranging through to actually, but our priority is maintain relationship and we're only going to do that through using them. And I just think there are good arguments on both sides and it is a conscience issue when we talk about relating to a non-Christian. Um, so we've got to reach our kind of decision before God. And what the Bible says about disputable matters is we each reach our conscience issue and then we focus on unity. We don't start fighting and falling out and breaking up our churches over them. So each one of us has to wrestle with it and it's okay if we reach different places about it. Why should I take this ancient book called the Bible seriously? If I identify as non-binary, why does the Bible insist that only males and females? Why should I care what the supposed God thinks? I love that. I think you've got an event coming up asking based on that question. Is Amy or you incoming? Yes, we are lives next week. Tell us about well, that. Well, it's more about why should we take the Bible seriously? So I don't think it'll be covering maybe specifically non-binary, no. but I think it'll be, yeah, yeah, why should we take the Bible seriously? So, so the first part, therefore, I'll mainly leave to Amy next week. I think why should I take this ancient book of the Bible seriously is very much what Amy is going to talk about. If I identify as non-binary, I mean, and that, then, then the kind of what the specific gender theme. The only thing I'll add on to what Amy is saying next week is, I really do think the Bible's message is, on this is more life-giving, both for individuals and society. I just think we're seeing so many of the problems of our culture's narrative. And actually, I just think yeah, there's good news, as I've tried to kind of expound this evening, as to why this is freeing for us and culture's perspective often isn't. So I think there's kind of just rational, reasonable reasons to think there's some potential good logic in this book, but very much come to hear Amy next week. She'll be fantastic on, yeah, why on earth would you listen to a book from 2,000 years ago? Thank you. You've covered one of my other notices there. So oh. that, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Next question. How do I honor Jesus in my life if I really strongly feel that I'm in the wrong body? What an amazing question. A desire to honor Jesus, even when things are really difficult. A few things. Find some trusted people you can tell first. Because actually, if it might be, you know, for all of us, there's costing for honoring Jesus and difficult things. And it's really important we have people around us who we can be honest with, can listen to us. It's not that Jesus says, you need to get in line and do this stuff and go and sort this thing on your own. It's you're part of a family to love you and support you. So that would be the first one. And then wrestling with them, I think. Asking together that question of what does it mean to honor Jesus from this situation? opening the scriptures today, wrestling with some of the stuff I've said tonight, and I've indicated what I think Christian faithfulness looks like, because I think it's this good thing at this given identity. But then also it's realizing that would be so painful if that's your experience. And as I've tried to say tonight, I don't want to diminish that or deny that or overlook that, but actually I would want to encourage someone to find how is it that in the context of church community and intimate relationship with God, even when actually it's very painful, we get to experience the grace and goodness and the nearness of God to help us to do that it's such a fantastic question because the heart there of i want to honor jesus is just yeah what jesus wants to see so in a sense walk with others alongside you i think to wrestle that and live that out thank you what percentage of the uk population actually identify as or want to identify as a different gender Mm. um if the percentage is so small why does it seem such a big issue at the moment great question yeah i mean i think we don't know the actual numbers in a sense um I'm trying to think, the recent census statistics, I don't know if they separate out. Oh, yeah, yeah there was a right mess, wasn't there, about how they ask these questions around gender and sex. So we, don't, we don't really know, basically. I mean, yeah, fairly small numbers. That certainly is the case. Among young people, kind of, um, you know, 10 through to 20, 
a larger percentage, although still not overly huge, depending on who you ask. Why has it become such a big issue presently? There are probably lots of different kind of political, well, other manner reasons. I think it's, it's, the, um, it's the kind of epitome example of certain ideas in our culture, the ideas being that who you really are is what you feel inside, and that things like biology and tradition and history are oppressive to us, all of which is rooted in a load of thinking for the last few hundred years. And I think it's such an epitome of that idea that it's really caught hold in the cultural imagination, even though it's not affecting as many people. So it's kind of, yeah, a complex mixture of ideas and politics, probably, but I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I'm conscious that we're obviously asking lots of complex questions here. Yeah. And there's lots of other questions to ask. I'm going to oh. go with the ones that have got the most votes. So apologies if I don't get to yours. Um, but how do you respond to those in the main mainstream LGBTQIA plus uh, movement, those who are culturally woke, who would consider you a traitor for preaching what you have mm. tonight? Yeah, yeah. How do I respond? I try and love them the best I can. <laughs> When people, as they do to a, to a gay Christian like me who's saying out of faithfulness to Jesus, I'm not pursuing a gay relationship, people do not like us sometimes and say pretty unpleasant things about us. And so I want to hear Jesus who says, pray for your enemies and bless those who persecute you. I want to do that. I want to love. Any opportunities I get, I want to engage in conversation because actually more than anything, really regardless of gender and sexuality stuff, I want to get to introduce them to Jesus. I want to embody Jesus to them. And I just want to stay faithful to God's word because I believe it's true and I believe it's good. I experience that to be the case in my life. I trust and I'm convinced that's true for every individual and for society. So I want to love while holding on to biblical truth and where possible, yeah, engage. Um, if they're up for engaging, I'm up for engaging in a sense. Thank you. This is also an, a challenging one. Well, all challenging, but... So you think God would rather people live their lives in pain as you described the experience of trans people who don't live out their felt identity instead of changing some physical attributes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the way I would, that's such a good question. The way I would put it, I think God wants people to live out who they really are and who he's made them to be and the identity he's given them because I do think that's the best thing for us. And I said, I, I'm just not convinced, there's not reliable evidence to show that transitioning actually has a long-term positive impact. Even the trans community, there's the talk of the 10-year itch. Like your first 10 years post-transition might feel quite good, but it's such a recognized thing that after 10 years, people often begin to actually experience, has this really answered my problems? Is this really making me feel better? that actually even in the trans community that's kind of openly talked about. What long-term studies we do have really don't suggest that mental health improves, that suicide risk lessens and stuff. So, so I'm not denying the reality of pain that's there from following God. I am so I don't think there's evidence the alternative is much better. And actually all of us in different ways, well many of us for different reasons in different ways, we'll live with a lot of pain in this life. And that's a different question for a different talk. We have to wrestle with why is that? But it's actually not an unusual experience. And we're just unusual in history of the fact that many of us get to live without a lot of pain. And that's just not been the reality of human existence for almost all of human history. And so it's the questions of why does God allow that? But actually what I want to say is I don't think this experience is so hugely different from everything else. And actually I do think on balance for our well-being, this is the best thing for us. Thank you. Um, the final question that has the most votes um, is, if one of the key reasons for gender difference is procreation, what does it mean if we 
never get married or we can't have children. Right. I'm so glad someone asked that, because as I go to my notes, I thought, well, that's a point I've omitted in this talk. Yeah, what this means is our, our bodies are structured towards, as in they're kind of, you know, built in a certain way, they could play one of two roles in procreation. That doesn't mean that we need to play those roles in order to be a man or woman. I, I'm a guy without kids. As I said, I'm single and celibate. I don't expect whether they're going to have kids. But it doesn't make me any less of a man. So it's about the, the structure of our bodies and the kind of potentiality, as it were, even if, for whatever reasons, and there can be various reasons, we don't actually, uh, that doesn't become a reality for us. We don't actually kind of um, live that out. And, and I think I would say the... Um, Procreation and production of children is one of the reasons for our difference. It's not the only one, but it's the defining feature. Maybe I'd want to make a distinction between how do we define men and women and what's the purpose of men and women. I think actually that thing of bringing glory to God and somehow the fact that we are different and yet we get to unite both in marriage but also more broadly in friendship and community, somehow that brings glory to God which is saying it's not just about, the purpose isn't just about having children, even if the definitional little aspect is about how our bodies are structured for that. Great, thank you so much. Um, thank you for answering all those questions. Um, thank you. Thank you.